Christina. Mariah. CITR, where you'll hear none of those divas. CITR 101.9 FM, where the only divas you're likely to hear are Kathleen. Suck my left one! Diamanda. <laughs> Lydia. Would somebody please inform the U.S. government that my uterus is not open to public debate. CITR 101.9 FM, your true diva station. See the glazed eyes, touch the dead skin, feel the cold lips, and know the warmth of the hip-death goddess.
And good evening. Good afternoon. This is Stereoscopic Readout, as you um, probably remember every Thursday from 6 to 7.30 on uh, CITR 101.9 FM in Vancouver. And uh, I'm a little giddy tonight. I'm a little excited. I'm a little nervous because... uh, it's been some time since we've had guests in the studio, and tonight we've got more guests in the studio. And to my left, we have Miss Diane Haynes, and to her left, we have Ms. Anne Daskal. Um, and uh, if you can both sort of introduce yourselves and let us know what it is that you, uh, you do today, because uh, we're going to be talking about things which are relevant to the scope of the show being the music and sort of a social um, and artistic overview of things that happened in the 60s and early 70s with regard to psychedelic music and prog rock and freak beats and garage music, but also things which are socially relevant. But, um, uh, Anne, if you can introduce yourself to the listeners and... I'll just bring this mic down. Okay. Uh, I've been living in Vancouver since 1970 and currently I'm a social worker with the health department, mostly dealing with uh, geriatric um, health issues and family issues, and uh, I got a degree, a social work degree, many years ago here at UBC, Mm. and uh, that's what I'm doing now. And Diana. Hi, I'm Diana Haynes, and uh, I was at uh, actually a DJ at UBC radio many, many years ago, but uh, I spent most of the uh, 60s and 70s either in Vancouver or London, England, and I was involved in the uh, the rock business. Um, I helped to manage a group called Mother Tucker's Yellow Duck, cool. and then later I was uh, involved with Isle of Man Productions, and we did uh, a couple of big shows out at Empire Stadium called Summer Sunday Amongst other there were others, there was a lot of a lot of shows, and uh, so I have a little bit of background in the music industry. Very cool, and um, I'm happy to say we do play uh, Mother Tucker's Yellow Duck on the show, uh, not infrequently. But um, if I'm, I'm going to start actually conver- the conversation with Anne because uh, she, Anne's got a lot of uh, experience with. Uh, what the uh, listeners may find interesting to note being sort of like I guess the grassroots sort of birth of the women's rights or women's issues movement. Right. Now, um, I know that you're from uh, Detroit, <laughs> but we won't hold that against no, you. No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, if you can give us like a, a little over, a, a kind of a story or a, an overview sure. of how it was that you came to be aware that there were issues that affected, I mean, you know, issues that affected women that, I mean, today right. we take for granted, but back then we set right. the stage and... Right. You know, I I think uh, part of it started because the 50s, when I was not that small of a child, um, was a time of uh, conformity and sort of the solidification of the middle class in the States after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stress on uh, uh, conforming and sort of consuming, and people were quite uh, placated. Yes. And uh, some people didn't feel so comfortable with that. And I guess the, around the 60s started to happen, and the feeling of um, 
opposition to the Vietnamese War. Uh, I don't know if you had it up here as much at all. You didn't, but there was the whole issue of McCarthyism and trying to annihilate anybody with a communist or left-wing background. People mm -hmm. were silenced. And so the Vietnamese War really was a, a huge motivation for people. And uh, so a lot of the students, as you all know, we sort of organized. And out of that, a lot of the women you know, and f discovered that um, we had a lot in common, and we were always talking in the Viet in the Vietnamese anti Vietnamese War movement about oppression and solidarity and power and hierarchies, and so the women started sort of hanging together and discussing their relationships and how they were being treated, using those terminologies of oppressed or. Um, disenfranchised people uh, yeah. and so like a lot of people I came up here mm -hmm. <laughs> to get away from the what we saw going on in the states and discovered a climate where um, because of uh, partly because of a trade union movement up here you're talking about like specifically in Van Vancouver. Vancouver very much a trade union movement a sense of honestly this was the Netherland. Things were open. Uh, oh, really? Pioneer mm -hmm. spirit, the way we saw it. Uh, you could live on the land. You could Actually, you could park on Broadway, and there were no parking meters. <laughs> people left their doors open. Uh, uh, people weren't afraid of uh, the communist under the beds. You know, yeah. it was a very a kind of place where you could kind of be who you wanted to be, and people were. Cool. And then the women started getting together around Pender Street. There was a place for rent in 1970, and we just a bunch of us got together and rented it. And out of there were a lot of women's uh, groups. Now, when you say you and um, a number of other women rented it, it was rent. It wasn't like a roommate situation. It was actually rented as a mm -hmm. sort of uh, like a women's community. It was called center. the women. It was actually called a, a women's center, and actually. A lot of what happened here is there were like these vanguardist movements, which you okay. would not see in the States except somewhere in New York or in a back corner of my hometown. Here there were groups like the Liberation Front. I can't remember all the names, <laughs> but they were uh, Trotskyists. Or, okay. And so they always had a little women's section to show they were like really hip and egalitarian. And the women's sections were always splitting off. <laughs> and so uh, I guess a group of women split off from the larger group and rented the space. And we had basically a phone and a desk. And uh, we we got in the phone book under the uh, Vancouver Women's Center. And we would sit there and answer the phones. And sometimes we had a little theater group rehearsing there, a women's union group. Uh, whoever kind of wanted to use it, Women's Health Collective okay. came out of a very similar building. Um, we had a women's automotive collective eventually in someone's oh, really? garage teaching women consumer uh, issues like uh, things they would need to know, like how not to get screwed around when taking right. your car to the garage. Yeah, or how to maintain your car, how to demystify uh, auto mechanics as an empowering experience. Wow. Okay. Now most people can't figure out their cars anymore because they're so complex. But yeah. then that was a way in. I have to say, there was a woman once we had at the workshop because I did work at one of those at the garage, and there was a very 
really neat, cute young gal, and she was just so excited by all this. I remember she said something like, I don't need a man. I need liquid wrench. <laughs> and uh, we put that on our banner. So that's how things kind of started, and the music went off from the mainstream music. Cool. Um, I guess getting back to you, the beginnings of your own personal experience, though, because I think mm-hmm. we uh, mm-hmm. talked about that. Like, I mean, when did you, first of all, I mean, sort of what was there a moment when you realized that you had become interested in more progressive causes or you'd sort of seen that, you know, the, I guess the Eisenhower vision of America wasn't what it was cracked up to be or something like that? Or When were those special moments? Yeah, or is it just like a gradual process or was it just friends you started hanging around with? And You, you know? know, it was a lot of people who did stay mainstream. When I go back to Detroit, I just can't believe, you know, how mainstream and uh, unprogressive... A lot of people are very complacent. Mm. But I think there was a small group of us who just saw the absurdity and everything that was going on. And we had the issue of racial... Yes. Um, I don't know what to describe it, but there was... I mean, you could say racism, but the discrepancy between the races was so apparent. Oh, you mean like the uh, differences in the standards of living? For the black, yeah, black people and white people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there were public swimming pools, huge pools that were uh, owned privately that, you know, shut down because black people started moving into that neighborhood and wanted to use the pool. Oh, wow. And I remember as a Jewish person, we actually were not allowed to use that pool either. And I remember the guy saying to some uh, Jewish community people, well, well, you know, you folks are kind of okay, but wherever you move, the black people come in behind you. And um, Somebody actually came out and said Yeah, they would wow. say things like that. And um, I think people went out of their way to conform a bit because it was so... There was so much affluence, you really felt much more safe than especially when your family was in Europe. Mm -hmm. So people were very, very eager to buy in. But to me, some of the absurdities um, were were there. I think there was a guy called Paul Krasner who wrote a little newsletter called The Realist that was so scathing and satirical and right on. And I was quite young. Mm-hmm. And I used to borrow it from my brother. And the other thing was Bad Magazine. Oh, really? I think for me that was very liberating. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, just sending everything up and so grotesque. That was the early yeah. Mad Magazine where oh, really? uh, they were so grotesque. Yeah. It was more how I felt was going on than, say, Little Lulu or mainstream stuff. Those mm-hmm. were the kind. And I think Edward Albee, The Zoo Story, and The Beatniks. Okay. Yeah. So cool. that's... And women's issues. I clearly mm-hmm. saw that yeah. families preferred boys, and mm-hmm. I was so wanting to get out of all that. Really? And I came mm-hmm. here. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, excuse me. <clears throat> but uh, from what I do remember uh, from having conversations with you uh, when uh, I used to lodge at your place, because um, that's, re- <laughs> listeners, how I know Anne. <laughs> Um, there are plenty of other stories regarding what happened in between, uh, which we'll be getting to um, right. a little bit later in the program when right. we're talking with Diana. Right. But what I also wanted to bring up was, um, I guess, you mentioned that there, you know, like there would be the anti-war movement, or there would mm-hmm. be like the Students for Democratic Society, yeah, right. and the women who would be involved with that would then start, you know, comparing notes, as it were. 
and mm-hmm. figuring out that even in the state of progressive thought, not all was, um, you know, like as it really should be. Yeah, should be. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on that because I know that uh, even in the counterculture movement, there was a certain amount of, I guess one would say, patriarchy, as it were. Well, very, very much. In fact, we called it the new left, and eventually we started calling it the new male left. Oh, really? And it was quite clear that it had its own particular quality to it. I think women, and I think, too, also, bless its heart, the Georgia Strait, mm-hmm. when it started, was an example of that. Um, was, I'm just trying to think of what the music part was, too. I think some of it that we didn't relate to lot, some of the music the men had, but we yeah. wanted our own music, too. Um, I think we were seen as kind of in the same roles as our mothers were with our fathers and that we the guys sort of tried to recreate that like we did a lot of the what's the word um joe jobs we did a lot of the work yeah uh i remember at the straight people were typesetting and proofreading and doing all kinds of work but we, it was like the men's work was the real work or they were the real work or they were the real thinkers mm-hmm. and um, it just felt, I remember there's some things like chicks up front. Okay. You know, like a demonstration. Oh, okay. You know, the chicks would be kind of up front, mm-hmm. uh, partly as a diversionary tactic. Uh, in the Black Panthers, which were in Detroit, uh, I don't know whether it was Eldridge Cleaver or Huey Newton, someone might call in at some point and say, I remember they were asked, what's the position of, the, of women in the Black Panthers? And he said, prone. You know, and um, there is a discrepancy in that a lot of the in the communes, the women, which is interesting, uh, they actually had children in there and uh, the women were keeping these houses going, made sure meetings happened, that things were happening and the guys were talking, um, you know, maybe not in the most realistic ways. And the women were doing the political work and were grounded in everyday life and what right. you had to do. Right. And uh, the guys were, foment- you know, what's it, fomentating things that weren't yeah. ever possibly going to happen. Uh, and sometimes it was very self-indulgent. Yeah, yeah I do get that. Yeah, because I, I think that was, because um, that was one of the things which really, I think, struck me the first time I heard it was it's you get this impression that there's equality and everybody's you know fighting or working towards some sort of utopia but yet it's if you ask a lot of women it's it was like the same a lot, yeah a lot of them were saying like the women were sort of welcomed into the say the peace movement because mm-hmm. they needed somebody to wash the dishes mm-hmm. and, and take minutes yeah. And, yeah that's in fact it really in some ways honestly replicated the families we came out of, mm. you know, and, and a lot of them were middle class, frankly. Yeah. And where there was some privilege for the women if you did things right or you should be really powerful but never have it acknowledged. Indeed. Yeah. And also women who went into leadership roles were not considered okay. So if a man was a public speaker and a... Uh, kind of a rebel rouser that was acceptable mm-hmm. aggressive was okay for a woman as studies wound up showing yeah, that was not okay yeah you were mentioning um i think is you were mentioning also before yeah the research uh that very research where this this double standard or mm-hmm. dichotomy right. um was 
quite shockingly apparent, but uh, I think for also maybe for the benefit of um, our listeners who um, are obviously not old enough to have been around at that time but, and maybe haven't been exposed to um, the situation through, say, a women's studies programs at UBC or or another post-secondary to get, maybe give us an idea, and Diane, you can uh, mm-hmm. maybe give us your experiences too. Like, what exactly was life like for a woman, um, an average woman in the 60s? Because I know that, you know, when I was speaking to you the other night, you were spelling out these rather um, just incredible, incredibly ignorant attitudes, like, say, on the parts of doctors or, mm. or people like that, um, mm-hmm. which, I mean, what's, uh, I, and I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth and say that it's not like that today but right you know um i just want to say that sometimes on radio particularly on cbc uh, around international women's day they'll have Mm -hmm. a a phone-in thing we'll say well how has the women's movement changed your life or how has feminism changed your life and it's almost axiomatic that some I mean, forget what the men are saying, and some are so right on, but a lot of the younger people will call and say they don't get it, that Mm -hmm. uh, they see things as always having been okay or it's a matter of individual ability and talent, and they don't understand what the big issue is. In fact, many people say, I'm not a feminist, but, but honestly, people honestly have no idea really what it was like. I, I just I could go on forever, but I'll try not to. Um, when I tried to, I bought a house many years ago, and I had I was fine with the down payment and the income. I had to have a man sign it. I even met a client of mine who's yes. 20 years older, who actually had to marry somebody. Oh wow! After her husband died and she needed to renew the mortgage, she actually had to find a man to marry. Wow. Um, sexual assaults, women were never believed. Um, divorce was impossible to get uh, unless you found your husband with somebody. Uh, jobs, there was no, the word career and woman was never used in the same mm-hmm. sentence. Um, women were quite powerless. Now, you actually, though, had families where one person could work and support the whole family. Yeah. And you got to, which nowadays isn't true. True. And a lot of women were protected. I mean, I think my mother was quite happy. Um, But a lot of people felt they weren't reaching their potential and they were frustrated. And Mm -hmm. you could tell in their child-rearing techniques sometimes Mm -hmm. where they were quite quite driven. And um, the other thing, appearance, women, how you looked was so much more important than who you were. Being a lesbian or you know, a gay man or a lesbian, mm-hmm. if you were known to be a lesbian, you would so lose your job, yeah. which is what happened about 1974 when a woman had an article in the paper. I mean, it just goes you know, on and on and on. Uh, women, there were no women in medical school. I mean none, mm-hmm. like maybe one. No, now more than half for women. There were almost no women lawyers. I, I, I mean, I can't remember. I don't know. Maybe you can, Diane. Well, I was just, I was just thinking back. You know, one of the, I think one of the really, really important things in the in the sixties that really made a huge difference was 
the birth control. Because oh, that's before yes. that, yes, you know, people don't really remember what it was like before birth control. But I mean, I remember friends of mine getting pregnant in, you know, the early '60s and having to go to backstreet abortionists and stuff. I mean, you know, we don't even think about that anymore. But that was one of the things that kind of empowered women to be involved in sort of the rock scene as, you know, they w could go and hang out with all these guys and mm -hmm. not really uh, have to worry about getting pregnant. Right. That was something mm -hmm. that was never available in, you know, earlier Indeed, yeah. eras. Huge turning and, point. I had yeah. mentioned it to yeah. Darren when we were talking about it. It's the real turning point but it was, was that. Kind of, it was kind of a a bad thing for women in a way because it made them, it kind of victimized women in a lot of ways because then the guys, especially in the in the rock scene, they were, it was very, very sexist and yeah. they, women were there as as mostly groupies, you know, mm -hmm. like you, you, you know, and sometimes the guys would hand women around in the band, like they'd, they'd sleep with everybody in the band yeah. and if you weren't doing something for the band, like I was, you know, you help, you know, I was helping to manage them. But I mean, still, a lot of people thought that I was a groupie. I remember Terry David Mulligan <laughs> saying, calling me a groupie, and I wasn't actually sleeping with any of these guys. It was just that was the it, way that it was assumed that if you were with the band and you were a woman, mm -hmm. that you were a groupie, some kind of a groupie. And um, I want to mention the double standard because sometimes they meant like groupie as a positive thing. Wow, she's a groupie. But there were very in those days there was those days. Mm -hmm. There was always the expression lady. You remember yes. uh, Joe Tom My Jones, old lady. My old lady or she's a lady yes. or uh, Billy Joel, you know, she's always a lady, you know. Yeah. But you know, there were ladies like women you respected. That's mm -hmm. the double standard. And the groupies are the women you could take advantage of and to be a real respected you had to be particularly virtuous yes and uh, actually many of these uh, many of the people that were technically groupies actually ended up with the guys I mean <laughs> you know they they ended up being the wives of these guys so I mean it, it wasn't just you know uh, a one-night stand type thing I yeah. mean often they they'd uh, <laughs> They'd end up as the partners of the of these rock guys. They were kind of like career moves. Yeah, the only yeah. career you could have. But then, that but well then when these guys went out on the road, it was a completely different story. Indeed. And I mean, the excesses of the bands in the '60s and '70s is incredible because they they would go and do these huge concerts and and there was no time like they were it was all being done by trucks and buses and stuff mm -hmm. and they'd go to the next gig and many of them were there was a lot of excess in in both women and drugs and everything else Indeed. because they were, they were on the road and they'd still have their wives back home but that mm -hmm. was well, yeah, indeed, it was it was like that double standard of what you could get away with on the road or whatever. But they would be expecting, obviously, their wives or girlfriends to just be waiting for exactly, them. Exactly. Their return. Um, I think at this point, what we have to do is go to some public service announcements and show promos. But to give the listeners um, a sense of what's going on for the rest of the evening, uh, Bleak has the evening off this week. Uh, so at seven thirty, Exquisite Corpse will be a pre-taped show. 
Um, at nine o'clock, either Ben or a reasonable facsimile of Ben will be in to do um, live from Thunderbird Radio Hell. Uh, Cliff is in at eleven as always with laugh tracks, and then at midnight it's JT with Raw Radio. And in the meantime, we're gonna go to some PSAs and play some music, and we will be back in a few minutes. Hey, Quentin and Dave from Chips with Everything. Hey, Heather from Queer FM, what's up? Well, you know how Bryce, our program director here at CITR, has kind of been riding all of our asses about making promos for our shows? Cha! Yes! Well, you know, I was thinking, like, over at the CBC, they have this woman named Promo Girl, and she comes on once an hour and tells everybody what's coming up, and it's usually kind of theatrical, and she has, like, a really sexy voice and stuff. Um, So anyway, I was thinking that I'd really like to have a promo boy, or, or like, promo boys. Would you guys be up for that? Uh, sure. What What do we have to do? Um, just tell people about Queer FM, really. Okay. Queer FM features news, views, current affairs, arts and music. For, of course, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered communities and all its allies. Heather Kitchen hosts Queer FM Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. on CITR 101.9. Go and cut your hair. Do you think it's gonna make him change? I'm just a boy with a new haircut, and that's a pretty nice haircut. Off with your hair. On Monday, March 10th, 2008, from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., Professional hairstylists from On The Fringe Hair Salon will volunteer their time to transform participants' tresses into statements of their desire to battle cancer. The marathon, dubbed Cuts for Cancer, saw its inception in 2002 and raised over $15,000 in funds for the Canadian Cancer Society. In March of 2005, the UBC Cancer Association launched its version of the event, and for three years running, it has seen its popularity from participants grow exponentially beyond their wildest dreams. People who cannot attend the event in person have sent their hair to the UBC Cancer Association from all over the world to the tune of $17,000 last year alone, and the donations continue to come in. To date, the generosity of over 700 participants at the various Cuts for Cancer events has helped raise a cumulative total of more than $120,000 the Canadian Cancer Society programs aimed at promoting cancer prevention, awareness, research, and treatment. Show your support by coming in to this hair-raising event Monday, March 10th at UBC. For more information, visit our website at www.cutsforcancer.net. Advertising looks and chops a must. No big hair! The wind is in from Africa Last night I couldn't sleep Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie But it's really not my home My fingernails are filthy I've got beach tar on my feet And I miss my clean white linen And my fancy French cologne Oh, Carrie, get out your Come on down to the mermaid 
these freaks and these soldiers A round for these friends of mine Let's have another round for the bright red devil Who keeps me in this tourist town Come on, Carrie, get out your cake
And we are back uh, with Stereoscopic Readout on 101.9 FM in Vancouver CITR, UBC Campus Radio, and we are continuing our um, interview with tonight with Diane, Diana, sorry, Diana Haynes and Ann Daskal about, um, it, I think it would generally be just women's experiences in the 60s. Oh. <laughs> um, now, Diana, um, we were talking before... Um, Sorry, we, before we came back in. Now, you had gone to London, England, and uh, I'm just wondering if you can pick up the story there because it's a really inter- it's a really yeah. neat story. And um, I Well, guess I, I went to London to take a course in uh, fashion merchandising at, mm-hmm. uh, next door to St. Martin's College of Art in London. And uh, I was a pretty naive young girl going over there, and... Uh, of course, I was into all the, the rock bands and so on, and I was really into R&B, which was not really something that most uh, white people were into at that time, and certainly not young girls. And I, I went to um, a Stax Volt review in, in the Hammersmith Odeon in 1967, which was a really a watershed event for me. Wow. Uh, it was a fantastic concert, one of the best I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And like uh, Otis Redding. Otis yeah. Redding and Sam and Dave, uh, Eddie Floyd, oh, yeah. uh, Booker T and the MGs with the uh, Marquis. I yes. mean, it was, a, it was a really fabulous concert. And uh, I was so naive. I mean, here I was coming from Vancouver, which was just kind of a small town in those days. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that <clears throat> it was potentially dangerous. I mean, there was, it was like an, an almost entirely black audience and in not a very nice part of London. And no. I went by myself and not even considering that that might not be a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. I went to a number of other concerts when I was there, like uh, Paul Simon and, and Art Garfunkel at the Albert Hall. And uh, it was kind of at the end of the Carnaby Street scene. And, um, you know, I, I it, there was... Lots of, uh, you know, great clothes and stuff like that. Bebas was at its height. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I was getting all these, all these sort of letters from here saying, oh, it's all happening here. Why aren't you here? And that was when the San Francisco thing had started to move up north. I yes. had actually seen the Jefferson Airplanes play at Brock Hall the year before before they ever became famous or yeah. anything. Was, and, was that was that actually, I think I may have heard a bootleg of that show in January of 1966, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. And uh, we were just, it was just starting to happen here mm-hmm. when I left. And then, of course, it was getting big by the time I got back. And mm-hmm. I, I got back, I flew into Vancouver, went and checked into the Georgia Hotel, and some friends of uh, brought me over some dope and we smoked marijuana and that was the first time I'd ever smoked marijuana mm-hmm. and uh, then uh, it was the Easter Bee-In oh, uh, really? a couple of weeks later and I went to the Bee-In and we all got stoned and um, <laughs> it was great, you know I, I mean, I can't even remember who played now I think Country Joe and the yeah, Fish Yeah, Country Joe and the Fish yeah, and I think and, uh, um, the United Empire Loyalists were there as well Right, right, right and uh, I, I went back to UBC and uh, um, I ended up getting involved with these um, uh, the Moore twins, we used to call them, Graydon, oh. Graydon and, his, and his brother Cliff. And they, Graydon and I shared a house, and he was a poet, a writer, and uh, Cliff was managing Mother Tucker's Yellow Duck. Okay. So 
they ended up coming over to my place mm -hmm. to to sort of party, and uh, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> I ended up, you know, ended up helping Cliff manage the duck, and that Indeed. went on yes. for a couple of years. Cool, and, uh, cool. It was mostly um, running around doing, you know, I provided transportation yeah. for them, I provided them with dope sometimes, yes. money, you know, and uh, I was, I was, Sort of a rich hippie, I guess you might say, in those days. And, okay. Uh, not really rich, but I had more money than anybody else. Mm. So I was always having bands asking me if I would manage them because they they oh, realized really? that, that the duck were onto a good thing. Oh, neat. So, uh, <laughs> I think um, I've heard say, and uh, it's the impression I've got, and it's it, it's it's not something that Vancouver gets a lot of credit for. But we did really have a very intense and focused sort of counterculture counter, counter scene, I guess, by the time 1967 rolled around it, it sort of moved to Kitsilano, yeah, the Kitsilano area, right, the 4th Avenue scene and that. And I'm just wondering if uh, you can sort of illustrate, like, you know, what, how, like, the sorts of things that were focused, because I think Anne touched on, there was already this history of, I guess, uh, union or labor politics in Vancouver, but um, just like, you know, exactly how... Well, there, know, the there was a... a C-Fun at that time, C-Fun Radio was yeah. located on 4th, and there was a hill right in front of, of um, the, the radio station, and <laughs> we all called it Hippie Hill. Oh, yeah. And everybody used to go there to hang out in the sunshine and smoke dope. And mm -hmm. uh, just down the street on the other side was a place called the Bistro, mm -hmm. okay. which was run... Um, Mark can't think of his last name now but it was um it was kind of a, like a coffee coffee bar but it ended up getting all the psychedelic groups like okay. mother tuckers and i'm sure united empire loyalists played mm -hmm. there i mean all all of the bands used to go there to play oh that's right and um, yeah i think i've got some um, white rabbit was another one another club at that time okay but then downtown retinal circus was happening yeah. And uh, Roger Schiffer, yes. who is a good friend of mine, yeah. uh, he, he ran that. And he brought in um, uh, tons of bands. Yeah. I mean, there was the, well, the Doors had, played yeah. there. Oh, yeah. And, and the Velvet Underground played mm -hmm. there twice. Right, you know? right, and right. Not a lot of people And downstairs that. was the Elegant Parlor, which, mm -hmm. of course, was Tommy Chung and yeah. the gang. And, uh, no, I heard something. Actually, I heard something about the Elegant Parlor was that um, uh, Ike and Tina Turner actually did a residency there for a month before doing um, a stint in Las Vegas or something to that effect. It, it may very well be. I, I, I don't actually remember seeing them there. I remember seeing Tina Turner several years later after she'd broken up with Ike at okay, the cave. Yeah. There was the Izzy's Supper Club mm -hmm. and the cave, and right. they used to bring acts. And I saw, I mean, the, the Mother Tucker's opened... For Richard Pryor oh. at Izzy's <laughs> Supper Club, <laughs> if you can imagine, what a show that was! <laughs> but Izzy's was still so straight that you had to wear a tie oh, yeah. to get in, and a, a, a jacket and tie. And wow. so they used to rent them at the door. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was there was uh, there was a lot of people that. Ha that became, later became hugely famous. Yes. played in Vancouver in the yeah. early days. So. Yeah, because I mean that's uh, it's, it's that's what I was sort of getting at was that you know it's like uh, we were, Vancouver was like the first place the Grateful Dead. 
played outside of uh, the Bay Area. Yeah, well, I, I saw the Grateful Dead at the uh, Agrodome mm -hmm. out, at, out, at, out at the PNE, which was a fairly small venue. Yeah. With, um, I think it was called the Paper Boys, was the opening act. Okay. And uh, yeah, they, they were great, mm -hmm. what I recall. <laughs> I was probably a bit, a bit stoned at the time, mm -hmm. but. Uh, yeah. Well, but um, yeah, so I mean, you have you sort of got um, involved with like the running of a or the management aspect of Mother Tucker's Yellow Duck, um, and that ended up sort of getting you into the music scene sort of full time, as it were. I remember you you were you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, I did a bit of traveling in between, but then I I got involved with um, I went to work for Isle of Man Productions, mm -hmm. which was Paul Merck's, and okay. they had. Um, actually sort of discovered he, he, he and his partners in Seattle had kind of discovered Hart okay. so, and Hart had recorded up here and uh, it, at Mushroom Studios and mm -hmm. um, it was uh, great because they, they had sort of, Ken Kinnear was in Seattle at Albatross yeah. Productions and Paul had uh, Isle of Man up here and so we used to do, there was sort of a circuit of shows and they they play Vancouver and then they go to Seattle. I mean, they got they do a lot of Orpheum shows like you know um, different people would, that weren't as big big enough to do a stadium show would play the Orpheum and we Randy Newman people like that mm -hmm. and so um, but then they did stadium shows as well so um, it was quite interesting and back back in the day I mean the you know, wasn't um, putting on these shows got to be more and more complex. I yeah. mean, then you got into the the really huge shows like the, the Stones, but then that sort of became de rigueur that everybody had to do these huge, huge productions. Yeah. But uh, um, that there was really no, hardly any women involved yeah. in the actual production of these big shows, except for catering. Publicity, um, office which, yeah. management, and so on. Which, not ironically, would be kind of domestic types of yes, tasks, exactly. just blown up to a stadium-sized proportion. Right. Yeah. But part of it was that women, a lot of the sort of roadie-type work was carrying equipment and stuff, and women weren't really up to it. No. And the technology, women... You know, before computers, women didn't really get into, you know, amps and things like that. They they weren't really very mm -hmm. into the actual production end of it. So um, mm -hmm. it was very much a male-dominated world. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I think uh, tying into what we were uh, talking about during the music break. Um, like you were mentioning how rare it was, like for the, the for there just to be a woman performer who played an instrument. Well, exactly. You know, back in the sixties. And, and Joni Mitchell was a stellar example mm -hmm. of somebody who was a really, really good guitar player. Yeah. And and uh, I mean, of course, she got into jazz and stuff. But mm -hmm. Bonnie Raitt is another good example. I mean, Bonnie yeah. Raitt was one of the first women that played electric guitar, yeah. and it was blues, more blues than mm -hmm. folk, yeah. but. Uh, there was very few women were mostly singers yeah. or if they did perform on an instrument it was usually tambourines or maybe piano but mm -hmm. it was it was into the 70s before there got yeah. to be 
like women hard. electric guitarists or bass or yeah, drums. Like, I mean, yeah. women drummers was really a rare thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Susie Catro had one of the first all female yeah. groups. Yeah, and, the uh, uh, the pleasure seekers yeah, in, in Detroit. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. But uh, that was. Uh, Really, mids. Well, she she actually was one of the pioneers. Yeah. And then, of course, the punk bands came along, and women got into the whole punk movement. Yes. And, yeah. uh, you know, actually, um, there was quite a few punk women punk bands. Yeah. Susie and the Banshees, mm-hmm. uh, but that wasn't even all girls. But the Slits and um, trying to think some of the other <laughs> some of the other well, punk X-ray women. specs. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 But Patti Smith, of oh, course, yeah. was sort of godmother of punk, yes. and, and she was very influential, and she Definitely played guitar. Yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I think tying into Joni Mitchell, uh, and I remember yeah, you, had a, you had a story. I'm actually kind of embarrassed, um, but when Joni Mitchell uh, was starting out, uh, she married a fellow named Chuck Mitchell, and they yep. were uh, around Detroit, the Midwest, in the folk scene. And I do remember at first, well, she actually played downstairs from where I was living in the inner city Detroit. And I remember seeing her name because they were coffee house scenes. Yeah. And I remember just kind of walking by going, oh, well, a, a chick musician, you know, she can't be very good. Ooh. Or, you know, I mean, that's where my head, head was at. I mean, uh, but I also know when she first started, she was really known as, you know, Chuck Mitchell's wife. Ooh. And, um, but she far surpassed mm-hmm. uh, him. I don't have no idea where he is at now. But uh, there just was just uh, I, I just I didn't give her enough respect. No. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, we're going to go to actually to another musical break right now, and this is going to be um, Great Society, which was Grace Slick's first band, um, which she was in with her husband. Darby and brother-in-law, I can't remember what, it's, what Darby's um, bro- brother's name was, but this is actually Someone to Love, which was later re-recorded by the Jefferson Airplane as Somebody to Love, which you probably know, but this is a version of it you probably haven't heard.
We are back. You are listening to Stereoscopic Readout on 101.9 FM, CITR in Vancouver, UBC Campus Radio. And tonight's show, as they all are, will be podcasted for posterity, but probably not for in perpetuity. Um, if you're interested in checking out the other um, shows, I think every show on CITR practically is podcast and you can go to www.citr.ca on the front page there's a very obvious podcast link you click that and there are a number of menus and if you're looking for stereoscopic readout we are under the indie eclectic menu heading um we are coming up on six minutes after seven so we're in the home stretch um of the show tonight and we are talking to ms ann daskal and ms diana haynes about well, I guess uh, women's experiences in the uh, in the psychedelic era, and you heard there obviously uh, Big Brother and the Holding Company live from the Monterey Pop Festival in '67, featuring obviously Janis Joplin, and before that was the Great Society, featuring Grace Slick. But uh, Janis Joplin, I think everybody, um, I'm the only person in this room who did not actually see Janis Joplin <laughs> perform, and. Uh, I uh, was. I think I was talking to when I was talking to you the other the other night, Anne, about Janice. It was like this interesting sort of uh, dichotomy, as it were, um, because I mean, obviously, Janice had been into progressive causes when she was in university and Port Arthur, or college in Port Arthur, Texas. But at the same time, there's this, um, and she's. Um, I, I guess in some ways seen as an icon, like a you oh, know a, a women's icon. But at the same time, she's singing uh, like, like this, women as losers. Yeah, and... the traditional sort of uh, mm-hmm. women being victimized blues yes, tradition of exactly. um, things like that. And I was just wondering, like, yeah, I, I think we, I don't think we'd actually got to a conclusion on that. Or you know, I don't think I'll ever get to a conclusion <laughs> on that because uh, she was an icon to a lot of us. I think a lot of can fifth conflicting things and especially when uh, as a feminist something you're into ideology you want everything to fit into a nice categories Mm -hmm. and niches and uh, and it was maybe a bit of an embarrassment to see the fact that she kind of self-subjugated herself a bit Um, you know I don't know whether going over to Grossman was the best thing that ever happened to her either but you know a lot of things about women as losers but with a lot of you know, neat sexual references, but also a sense that possibly she, uh, you know, was sexually exploited. Uh, what a powerful, dynamic woman, uh, very individual, um, and yet you knew she probably had a lot of sort of self-destructive drug issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much spirit, uh, you know, so vivacious. Uh, and, you know, you kind of, as a role model for me, it was a little scary because oh. <laughs> I just wanted to be as wild and as talented as she was and as autonomous mm-hmm. in a way. Um, on the other hand, she was pretty out there. Oh, yeah? And you didn't know where she was going to land. 
because she was a pioneer again uh, in that uh, sort of raw music scene. Yeah. Somewhat unsupported uh, in a way, uh, especially not by not well supported by other women. And, uh, you know, she did self-destruct. I know feeling terrible because I think it was around the same time Jimi Hendrix died. Yeah, there was that 18-month period where Hendrix and... Jim, Jim Morrison. Morrison, yeah. Yeah, and I thought they were, you know, I don't know about Morrison, but I thought these two people, Hendrix and Janis Joplin, were just awesome people. And you, I kind of wanted to model myself after her a bit. <laughs> but um, maybe it's a good thing I didn't. No. Um, so that was my feeling. She really was uh, perhaps a victim of her time a bit. It's like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. You know, uh, she achieved great things. Uh, but without, like, a road map, as it Without were, a road map, without her support. Yeah. I used to say about Marilyn Monroe, she died for our sins. Ooh. And maybe I feel a little bit that way about mm-hmm. Janis Joplin. I don't know. I think, um, in some ways, Janis is portrayed as a victim in, mm-hmm. in the media. But I, I don't know that she was as much of a victim as people portray her. She really was one of those few women at that time that did manage to get the respect of her fellow musicians and was one of the boys. Yeah. And um, they, you know, she she may have had a tangled personal life, but she did have quite a bit of power. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, um, she, her songs were in the tradition of the traditional blues and Mama Mae Thornton and people like that and there was a, a lot of interest in that kind of music then. I mean, I think Mama Mae Thornton was playing the rock festivals, and um, Janice was kind of like one of us, but uh, but she modeled herself on the on the great blues singers, and um, and people really respected her for it. But I don't think that was necessarily her point of view. I mean, she she. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what she was singing about. I think I agree with you a, a, a lot because if you see the movie, the Festival Express yes. movie, yeah, definitely. Uh, that really did also turn my head around because she's clearly respected. She's clearly one of the boys, mm-hmm. and her talent was so, and her power was so obvious there. So if people haven't seen that movie, they should rent the DVD and, and I think take she, a look. Part of it was her stage. She did do that as part of her stage uh, uh, persona. Mm-hmm. She, she, had, she would come on the stage with the bottle of Southern Comfort in her, in her hand and wearing the fur coat that she'd gotten from Southern Comfort. And, you know, uh, she, she mm-hmm. played that to the hilt. That was part of her, her stage act. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously she did have some problems with drugs, but uh, <laughs> I, I think that part of it was just the way that she portrayed herself. And, um. Interesting. Sorry, I'm just standing up because I actually had a very bad leg cramp oh. in the middle of that conversation. But um, yeah, no, I mean, you. Uh, what was I saying? No, you'd seen Janis Joplin perform live. You said in the early '70s. Yeah, in Vancouver. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. but. Um, when I, I, I went down, I would, well, I think we were all down in San Francisco back and forth yes. in that era because it, it was the kind of mecca for mm-hmm. everybody from Vancouver to go to, to go down to San Francisco. And of course, if you went 
there from here in the middle of winter. It was warm, and the first time I ever went to San Francisco, I went and it was snowy here, and I flew into San Francisco, and it was a beautiful, uh, you know, warm. Well, I got Balmy. in there at midnight, and we took a taxi to Haight-Ashbury, and I'm walking along the, the street at Haight-Ashbury at midnight, and it was crowded with people, and um, this was just something that we didn't experience here. Yeah. And uh, I went to, uh, there were several ballrooms at that time, and I remember going to the Avalon yeah. Ballroom oh, yeah. the Avalon and seeing yeah. It's a Beautiful Day, which actually had two women. One woman was singing, and the other was uh, playing piano. And uh, they had, a, of course, the electric violin, which was what they were became known for. Yeah. But um, it was quite magical, really. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Anne, you'd also lived in uh, San Francisco around that time for a bit too. Um, I would, I guess, I'd say I summered. Oh, okay. I summered in San Francisco. Uh, I, yeah, I went there. I guess in '67 this summer, and uh, I hung out in Berkeley a lot. Okay. And uh, so I think that's well. Berkeley's where Country Joe and the Fish were from, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. They they were there a lot too. There were a lot of uh, concerts in the the park around San Francisco and Berkeley and okay. that and. Uh, I saw, yeah, I went to the Fillmore. I, I, I guess I saw Janis Joplin there earlier than here in Vancouver, mm -hmm. and she was in really fine fettle. I mean, she was yeah. very, uh, doing very well musically then. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think who else I saw, but it was it was all kind of just happening all over the place. You know? Yeah. There well, was a, a lot of uh, groups had houses near Haight-Ashbury because that was where the panhandle yes. was. Yes. And I actually remember staying at, at a house on, I think it was the Charlton's or something right. like okay. that yeah, and yeah. on Oak Street. Yes. And I, a Grateful Dad had a house nearby. Yeah. And um, the, the Jefferson airplane, airplane think, was over were, on Fulton were Avenue. There. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, and you'd wander out into, into Golden Gate Park and you were, you know, it was all full of of what we called we called ourselves freaks in those days. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, Excellent. it was very laid back. Cool, and, uh, yeah. cool. And I think um, Anne, I was um, quite surprised to hear a couple of years ago when we were having a conversation that you were at Woodstock as well. Yes, yeah. And I was going to say again, uh, there weren't a lot of women who just went to Woodstock. Mm -hmm. You know, again, you would go with your old man or something, but just to say, hey, I'm going to go to Woodstock. Yeah, it, you know, it was it was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was great. I remember I was going to meet my boyfriend there, and he was coming later, and I remember saying, I'll meet you stage left. You know, like, <laughs> as if, as if. It was just a sea of people and a sea of mud, and um, the music was great, mm -hmm. and uh, it was, it did feel like a an amazing event and I'm yeah. trying to think again Jimi Hendrix was you know, there was no women performing I can't even think of a woman who was well, I think, performing um, well, was I know Joan Jefferson Hendrix? Airplane were there yeah and I don't. Melanie was there I think. oh Melanie I remember <laughs> seeing Melanie I what can I say? Yeah. You know, she's I think uh, for our listeners who aren't um, aware of who Melanie was, she did that song. Uh, was it I've Got a Brand I've New Pair of Roller Skates? skates. You've got, got a brand, brand new key. key. She was actually quite good. She and was she, good. She, got, yeah. uh, she ended up getting 
killed by that song. I mean, I'm oh, not killed, but bad. I mean, you know, like that yeah. ruined her career, really, because she was actually quite a good singer. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking of Feist and all of these sort of offbeat, uh, you know, eclectic yeah. uh, solo artists oh, yeah. now. And then she was like, yeah. not, yeah, yeah, you're right. It wasn't respectful. But we had quite a lot of good rock yeah. uh, festivals right around Vancouver. Oh, yeah, was, definitely. Uh, there was one up at Squamish. And uh, as, I rem- as I recall, uh, the Graham Parsons and the uh, mm-hmm. Flying Burrito Brothers oh, came really? to that. Yeah. And then there was one out in Aldergrove, and that was a good one, too. And then uh, down in uh, Seattle, just outside of Seattle, there was a big one uh, called Gold Creek Park. Yeah. And we had, uh, there was Led Zeppelin, there was wow. The Doors, there okay, was yeah. a ton of people at that one yeah there was that was the seattle pop festival in 69 wasn't it yeah yeah yeah. i think there was another um uh, this has just popped into my head because i've forgotten about this but there was another big one in 69 and it was an outdoor it was like the sky river festival right the sky river and that was actually the the mother tuckers played that yeah and And, uh, my and ring played there too. yeah yeah and oh god my and ring (laughs) (laughs) very cool yeah very cool so i mean um uh, I think uh, th- the legacy, I think, as it were, how you feel um, about, uh, you know, like having done, like, obviously, like you said, there were not a whole lot of, you know, young single women who would just up and go. I mean, obviously, you were in London to study, but not just to up and go and do things on their own and things like that. And as Anne said, you know, like not just up and go, I'm going to go to Woodstock yeah. unescorted, you know. I mean, it's like, I mean, how do you feel now looking at, certain things like i mean obviously what women can do now but uh, i mean uh, vis-a-vis i guess uh <laughs> i'm so jealous <laughs> i don't know what to say i mean it's a different world i think it's really awesome mm-hmm. uh that again people when we talk about this thing they they don't believe us or they don't think it's relevant or that it couldn't have been like that and maybe i'm happier that they they can't even imagine how restrictive things were, but things have really changed. Yeah, I, I agree. I, my my son uh, quite often sort of harks back to the wonderful years of the of the, the hippie years, and I have to keep reminding him that, well, yeah, it was great to be able to see Hendrix and all these people, but there was some some bad things about that period too i mean you know underneath i mean the 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 love and flowers and everything there was a lot of bad things going on and uh, you know bad things for women and also it got quite violent yeah in the late 60s um because of the whole drug thing and uh you know it's i think it's well i can't say that it's not violent now but it's Women have certainly become a lot more empowered. Definitely. You know, totally. Yeah. And it's funny because while we were saying this, uh, briefly, it's like I really thought, my family really thought that I was literally going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and that was the term that was used. In other words, I wasn't going to proms. I was going to rock and roll concerts in the middle of the woods. Yeah. I was considering, I didn't quite finish school at the right time because I had to go away to Berkeley, you know. A lot of people, I was worried, frankly, what would ever become of me uh, that I was, you know, going to go off the deep end. And I'm just really happy to see that those kind of characteristics, you know, that are like people, women who initiate or are creative or follow their own interests is now kind of a given. Mm -hmm. And that um, you aren't considered a person at risk, you're sort of 
self-actualizing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, um, we do have some time left, which I'm going to play some more music. But I just wanted to thank you very much, Anne, and thank you very much, Diana, for coming in. And um, It's been a pleasure. Definitely, yeah. And um, hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully, I mean, somebody, hopefully it was worthwhile to you, too, the listener out there who's listening to this right now. But uh, I'm going to leave you with a, a couple more tunes, and I'm going to start off with... A song that I've been playing quite a lot of, actually. It's uh, brand new. It's from the brand new um, Black Mountain album, In the Future. And this is Queens Will Play on Stereoscopic Readout 101.9 FM CITR. A pre-recorded episode of Exquisite Corpse is up next at 7.30. But bye for now.
long time ago in a city far, far away. CITR was born. In the decade ahead, America will be in space. CITR is already there. Astronaut Neil Armstrong had this to say about CITR. That's one small step for man. So vote CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver. Herbert R. Tarlick, Chairman.